Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 10. And uh, you're doing that, you can take out your outline from the worship folder so you can follow along with where we're going this morning. <clears throat> you know, it was um, a number of Easter's ago, I don't remember exactly when it was, but we gave out a book to everyone called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Died by John Piper. And um, if you happen to have that book, you might want to pull it out and look at it again. It's really a great book. Uh, three of the reasons that he gives are specifically related to the passage that we're looking at this morning in, in Mark chapter 10. Uh, you've got them on your outline. Number one, to become a ransom for many. Number two, to call, uh, to call us to follow his example of lowliness and costly love. And number three, to ransom people from every tribe and language and people and nation. What Jesus teaches us um, about being our savior and our servant reaches the high point in the verses that we're looking at today. I've mentioned before that I think that Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 is really the key verse in the entire gospel of Mark. And so we're, we've arrived there today. Uh, Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Uh, John Piper actually says of Mark 10, 45, that it, that that verse is what turns Christianity into the gospel. I, I love that, and I think that's true. We've said this, uh, not only that it's a key verse, but it is the ultimate reason why Jesus came uh, to die. Um, and it gets to the heart of the gospel, as well as a model for us to follow in our own lives. So also on your outline, in Mark chapters 8 through 10, we have the most specific teaching on discipleship in the New Testament. Uh, in each of the, the, those chapters, 8, 9, and 10, there's a passion prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection. There's a foolish response by the disciples, I think, to remind us that we're in good company because we often ask foolish questions, me included, we all do. And a lesson on discipleship, service, and genuine spiritual greatness. You know, we've said before that the Bible is its own best commentary. If you want to understand a verse of Scripture, then there are always other verses of Scripture that shed light on the passage that we're looking at. And there are some amazing verses that shed some great light on Mark 10.45. So I wanna begin with those, and the first one is on your outline, Philippians 2, uh, verses three through seven. And since you have it, we all have the same version in front of us, let's read it out loud together. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature 
of a servant. Man, that's what Jesus did. Came not to be served, but to serve. He is, has the very nature of a servant. And this is what the gospel does in our lives. That should reflect us when we come to a place of humility like the Savior. And as we look at today's verses, a little background that will set the scene for where we're going in, this, in these verses is the next paragraph that you have on the outline. Uh, so as the road trip continues from Galilee to Jerusalem, Jesus gives his third and most detailed prediction of his passion and resurrection. James and John fail to realize the implications of what Jesus has said. Each time Jesus speaks of his death, he follows that up with a teaching on true discipleship. And this time he speaks about being a servant. The good news is that eventually James and John become two of the greatest servants in the New Testament account. As Jesus walks the path of surrender, so should we. So follow along in your Bibles as we read Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard this, uh, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We'll stop there. This is God's word to us. <clears throat> so, you know, when I think of the Apostle Paul and the way he ministered, uh, one of the churches that was pretty messed up that he ministered to, and we're thankful because he ended up giving a lot of instruction that's helpful for us, is the Corinthian church. 
And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, in spite of all the disappointment that the Corinthians were to Paul, he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, you have it on your outline, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, <clears throat> but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Um, I, I love that, <clears throat> excuse me, because Paul struggled with his church and yet he still puts himself in the position of a servant with this church. Um, <clears throat> another verse that I think sums up the passage really well is Titus chapter two, verse 14. And also on your outline, and it says this, who Jesus of Jesus, who gave himself for us to ransom us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. And then you can underline this on your outline, eager to do what is good. And that's what we should be. That describes what we should be like, eager to do what is good. When, when Christ comes into our lives, he turns us into a, a dynamic community that is the body of Christ. Uh, we are here, we are a part of the body, but the dynamic means living and active. We're a part of, of what God is doing. Um, and this is completely a different mindset than the world has. And then he takes us from here and sends us out into the world to do what's good, to look for opportunities to let our light so shine before people that they might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And so the first thing that we see here about servanthood and the cost of it is from uh, the servant Jesus. Number one is that service invites misunderstanding. Service invites misunderstanding. Mark makes a point of saying in verse 32 that Jesus is leading the way. Uh, the road to glory involves suffering. And Jesus wants to make sure that the disciples have counted the cost. Jesus knows he's going, uh, the cost of what he's going to pay, but, and he, so he leads the way, but it unnerves the disciples. Jesus knows where he's going, but the disciples don't, and they don't realize the implications. And so the road of service always involves a mission and sometimes the people around us, even the people who love us, even other believers, won't always understand the mission that God has given us. And so we have to anticipate that family and friends may understand what we're doing as believers. Um, ministry, are you kidding? Missions, are you out of your mind? What are you thinking of? You know, I had just become a Christian. I was 15 years old, and I, I went to my aunt and uncles. Uh, they were not believers at the time. They later became believers, but, uh, and it was kind of an Apostle Paul type of conversion for both of them. But uh, for Christmas, I was so excited to give my, parent, my aunt and uncle a living Bible. And um, I gave it to him, and my uncle said, uh, Kenny, thank you. Go to hell. A Merry Christmas to you, Uncle Wally. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with that. My aunt later called my mom and said that she thought I should get psychological help. They said, Kenny is a fanatic. He's become a religious nut. I think a fanatic is someone who loves Jesus more than me. But anyway, uh, that's what my aunt and uncle said about me. I know missionaries from our church who have had family members, close friends say, why are you going into missions? Don't waste your life over there. We need you here. 
And, and that's what some of our missionaries put up with. Another reason to be praying for them as they go and as they serve. Jesus was sent to serve. And he sends us to serve. And he wants us to count the cost as we go. And this is exactly the cost that the rich young ruler said was too great. In fact, look back at verse 22 in, in uh, Mark 10. His face fell, talking of the rich young ruler, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. So we, ought to, we have to count the cost. And when we do, we'll often, I think, be misunderstood by those around us. The second thing that we see here in these verses is that serving others goes against our natural desires. Um, the German Kaiser was one of the most well-known people of World War I. Uh, when he passed away, his valet, who arguably knew him better than anybody, wrote something that was um, not at all flattering about him. He wrote this. Uh, he said, I cannot deny that my master was vain. He had to be the central figure in everything. If he went to a christening, he wanted to be the baby. If he went to a wedding, he wanted to be the bride. And if he went to a funeral, he even wanted to be the corpse. I mean, that, that is just sick. You think about that. What, is, what kind of a mind thinks that way? And yet, you know what? We all have a selfishness in our hearts. And maybe it's easy to laugh at that and, and how ridiculous that is because we go, well, you know what? I kind of like to be the center of attention too sometimes or maybe all the time. Um, but however absurd this is, this is Jesus, this is James and John. Look at verse 35. Uh, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Golly, how, how uh, forward can you be? Uh, and, and, and Jesus asks the question, what do you mean to do for you? And James and John do get one thing right. They know that Jesus is headed for glory. Look at verse 37. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in your glory. They got that last part right. But man, they got everything else wrong. They don't understand that Jesus had, has to die for the glory to come. And Jesus knows that he needs to get this essential lesson across to the disciples. And they have to die to themselves. That's what he's asking them to do. And you know, when I first read this, I thought, man, this sounds like a game of survivor because it's like they, they blindside Peter and vote him out. Give James and John, give us these seats. Forget about Peter. Forget about the others. Uh, and the others aren't very happy about this either, but Jesus had already promised them in Matthew 19 that they would sit on 12 thrones with him in the kingdom. Uh, but th that wasn't enough for James and John. They wanted to be on either side. They wanted to be in the places of honor. And it seems like the glory that they were imagining was more like a, a ticker tape parade or being dressed in royal clothing that was purple and gold. It's like the disciples hadn't heard anything Jesus was saying. And, and, and they didn't have a clue about the future they faced. So what does that show us? You've got it on your outline. It shows that the disciples still had a shallow understanding of what it means to be a disciple. They had too high of an opinion of their own importance and a wrong understanding of how God 
measures greatness. Being a servant runs counter to our opinion of ourselves. Jesus seems firm, but I think he's so gracious in his response. And he compares the suffering and death that he's going to go through with drinking a cup and being baptized. Look at verse 38. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? To drink a cup with someone is to share in something that's going on in their lives uh, that we want to celebrate, uh, that they're going through. Imagine drinking champagne at a wedding. We're, we're celebrating the couple who's getting married. We're, we're sharing in their joy. Uh, what do we do when we take communion on a Sunday morning? What we're sharing together in remembering Jesus and what he did for us that he died on the cross for us, that our sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ. We're remembering that together. Uh, At the same time, the cup is also a common picture of judgment in scripture, Uh, the wrath of God. Like in Isaiah 51, for example, it says you will drink the cup of God's fury and you will stagger. So baptism represents being immersed, that's what the word baptism means, Baptizo in the Greek means to immerse, being immersed in the will of God uh, and, and his plan, the plan of the Father. And that's what the cross was. The cross was something Jesus didn't want, but it was absolutely in the plan of the Father. Jesus knew what God's will for him was, but in his humanity, he struggled against that. How do we know that? Because what did Jesus pray in the garden? He said, take this cup from me. Take it away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And in Luke chapter 12, he says, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how it consumes me until it is finished. The disciples would have a destiny like Jesus. Jesus says it in verse 39, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. And we know that because in Acts chapter 12, we learn that James would be the first of the apostles to be martyred for his faith. Uh, Look at, at, uh, well, I'll just read Hebrews 12, one and two says, about that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. And we know from Revelation chapter one that John was uh, under the emperor Domitian was exiled to the island of Patmos. And so they did drink the cup that Jesus drank. They were baptized with the baptism that Jesus was baptized with. So Jesus asks this question, what do you want me to do for you? Wow, think about that. What would you say if Jesus asked you that question this morning? What would be your response? If Jesus right now were to ask that to you, what would be the first thing on your list? I can think of a lot of things we might say. Can you make my children easier to parent? Can you make my spouse easier to live with? Uh, Can you make the grass in my yard grow a little slower? Uh, Or maybe the weeds not be there? 
Uh, could you uh, make my job more enjoyable? Uh, could you give me a job? Could you increase my finances in some kind of a spectacular way? Or at least make the housing costs in San Diego go down? Uh, could I have better physical health? Could I have a schedule that would be somehow more predictable? And the list goes on and on and on. What would be on your list? Is it for you? Or is it about the will of God? Or do you add, Lord, not my will, but your will be done? These men were clueless about what they really needed. What they desperately needed was the redemption that Jesus came to offer them. And they have no sense of their own spiritual need when they make this request. This is what, the, what sin does. It loads us down with self-interest. Does your one thing align with God's will? That's what we want. That's what we need to ask God wisdom for as we make our requests. That's why it's, you're always safe to pray the word of God because you know that is God's revealed will. You pray the word of God for yourself, for others. The third thing that we see about servanthood, uh, number three, is that serving is a choice. Serving is a choice. Look at verse 41. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. These 10 are angry with James and John because of their request and probably because they wish they would have thought of it first. They're like, why didn't we think of that? Golly, we could have gone to Jesus. You mean we could have, he could have given us whatever we asked for? The 10 are angry, but this lesson on being great in God's kingdom is what comes out of it. Jesus uses this as a way to teach that lesson. And the first lesson Jesus gives is that you have, and this is on your outline, you have to say no to the ways of the world. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. The world's all about selfish ambition. The world is all about a lust for power, a lust for position. Give me more, put me higher. Let me climb this ladder. In the world, the more important you are, the more people will serve you. And look at this lesson that Jesus gives them in verse 43. It must not be so among you. You don't lord it over anybody. This is a direct opposition to the mindset of the world. And this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 12 when he says, don't let the world mold your minds. Don't let the world uh, around you squeeze you into its mold. But be remolded as you, as you focus on who Jesus is and God and his word. And at the same time, when you say no to the ways of the world, and this is also on your outline, you have to say yes to the work of a servant and being a servant. Verse 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. So I know the heart of many of you. I know you want to do great things. I know you want to do great things for God. Then we have right here what, the way we need to do that. Be a servant. 
Serve the people around you. Serve the people that are the hardest around you to serve. The person who has the mind of Christ, going back to the passage we looked at in Philippians. That's what we're called to do. It's to live, to to be clothed with humility. And then finally, we see in verse 45, Jesus came to serve. That's number four. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, he starts out with these two words, for even, and I think that emphasizes the incredible humility of God the Son. His service, uh, the one who by all rights should be honored and served by everybody else, says even the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve. And then the son of man comes from Daniel, uh, chapter seven, and is connected to the ransom for many, which the idea comes from Isaiah 53, which completely, radically redefined what the Messiah was supposed to look like. Um, And so Isaiah 53 in verse 12 says, he poured out his life unto death, speaking of the Messiah, and was numbered uh, with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So Isaiah 53 tells us he's the suffering Messiah. He's the man among all men. He is the, the son of man, if you will, the man from heaven. Usually when you see the word ransom, it's translated redeemed It's in, in the New Testament. It's the same word. And the word means to buy something or someone out of captivity. You know, I I heard the story of a young kid who um, spent weeks making a a boat that uh, had a sail on it, a little small boat that he could play with and go out and put in the lake and and it would, you know, go and he'd run and chase it. And he was always careful to do it so he could run right along the shore to retrieve it. Uh, One time when he was sailing it, a big gust of wind came up and took it away and he ran and he knew he'd never see it again. He was hoping that the wind would change and bring the sailboat back that he had made, but it it was gone. And he was so so discouraged and and just downhearted that all the time he'd put into making this boat was lost. Some weeks later, he was walking in his town and he ran across a secondhand store and he just glanced and saw what he thought for sure was his sailboat. And it was. And uh, he went in and examined it and he said to the owner, this is a boat that I made. Can I have it? And the owner said, you know, I'm sorry, but I bought it from somebody who uh, found it and sold it to me. And so I'm sorry, but I, I can't give it back, but you can sure buy it. I'll hold it for you so you can buy it. Well, the little boy went home and worked hard to earn the money to be able to buy the boat back and mowed yards and did errands and did all these things to do it. And when he came back and bought it, he said to the owner, you know what? This is my boat twice because not only did I make it, but I also bought it back with my own money. And you know, that is exactly what God has done for us. He's made us, he's created us, and he has redeemed us, he's ransomed us, he has bought us back with the blood of his own son, Jesus. When Jesus says that he's our ransom, this is on your outline, he's telling us two things about ourselves. First of all, that we are in bondage to self. 
We're in bondage to self. It's one thing if somebody says, hey, I'm gonna tie you up. Uh, Then you know you're a captive. But if somebody knocks you out and then ties you up, you have absolutely no idea. You're completely overcome. You don't have anything to fight against that. When a non-Christian says, and I've had non-Christians say something similar to me, that they're not in bondage, uh, they don't even know that they're in bondage. And the person that doesn't know they're in bondage, they're the person that's truly a prisoner of their bondage. So what are we slaves to? Well, the New Testament, Paul says it pretty clearly that we're lovers of self. We're slaves to ourselves. And when you're looking at, you, at yourself, you're always feeling hurt because maybe you're comparing yourself to other people. You're feeling left out. You always believe that somebody isn't treating you with the respect that you deserve. And what ends up happening is that you're always out to protect yourself. That's bondage. And, and we're, we're also, uh, in, in this, you can add this one on, we're in bondage to idols. If you don't have Jesus as your Lord, something else will be your Lord. Whatever it is you put your hope in. What do you put your hope in? You put it in your family? You put it in your 401k? Do you put it in uh, relationships? What do you put your hope in? This means that anything that you have to have to make you happy, that's your hope. That's your Lord, in other words. And then finally, another one to add is that we're in bondage to the law. We all have a sense of, like it talks about in Galatians chapter four, you've got the reference on the outline. To be under the law means we know we're guilty. We know we fall short. We know we break God's law. We all have a sense of moral accountability before God. We know we haven't measured up. And so the next thing that that, that Jesus talks about here about being our ransom is that he's come in order to be our substitute, to ransom us. You know, the fastest way to destroy ourselves is to say to God, you know, we, want, we don't want you to be in charge of our lives. We want to be in charge of our lives. That's the fastest way to destroy your life. Um, it's like an eight-year-old saying, you know, I think I'm going to take the car out for a spin. What does that lead to? It leads to destruction. And it's the same way for us if we decide we're going to do our lives our way. Um, is God angry when, when we sin? Well, you know, he's, he's angry in the same way that a father would be angry if his son does something that he knows will lead to his destruction. Of course God will. There has to be wrath. I like the way one commentator put it. He said, the cup of God's wrath is an eternal monument to his goodness. Think about that. Because we've sinned and fallen short of God's glory, we deserve God's wrath on us. 
A price has to be paid. The good news is that Jesus has paid the price. What was it like for Jesus to drink the cup of God's wrath? Well, we don't know, but we do know that just the anticipation of it made Jesus sweat blood. That's a really rare thing to happen, but it's not unheard of. It's actually called hematohydrosis. And it's rare, but it happens when there's extreme shock or extreme stress. Jonathan Edwards um, explains it like this. He says, explains Jesus sweating blood. That Jesus' agony was caused by, here's the quote, a vivid, bright, full view of the immediate wrath of God. That's what Jesus saw in the garden that made him sweat blood. For someone to say, I don't believe in a God who pours out his wrath on sin. I've had people say that to me. They don't believe in a God of wrath. I would say, boy, you better be sure of it because what you're doing is robbing yourself of the greatest gift you could ever have. Eternal life, abundant life. Without an understanding of the wrath of God, we'll never understand how much Jesus loves you, how much God loves you that he sent Jesus to die for you. You'll never have an understanding of that. You'll never be melted by that. You'll never be changed by that. Our call, and this is on your outline, is to follow Jesus in sacrifice. So in verse 45, we see the term come, for even the Son of Man did not come, which I think is really cool because it points us, I think, to the preexistence of God the Son. No one takes his life. Jesus came to give his life. Jesus died because of God's love. He gave it. No one took his life. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, for you know that you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus sees our hopelessness. He sees our situation. He pays the ransom. He redeems us out of slavery. He brings us into the Father's house, into the body of Christ, into the family of God. And the grace of God changes us. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so, what is a servant? A servant is somebody who, like Jesus, doesn't say, uh, you know what, <clears throat> I need to try to maneuver for a certain position in this relationship. Uh, a servant is somebody like Jesus who, who, who doesn't say, I, I, I don't have to always, or I have to always try to make sure everybody likes me. That's what someone who's not a servant says. Or... <clears throat> Uh, says, you know, it's, it, the, the truth is it's my job as a servant to move out, to see what the needs are around me and to do everything I can to meet those needs. That's a servant. A, a servant is somebody who makes you feel valuable, who gives very specific and, and sincere and real praise and encouragement to you. That's like Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, uh, says that it's a natural impulse of the human heart when you meet somebody, he says, that you immediately look for a position of superiority. 
you automatically say, what does this person think of me? Is this the kind of person I want to get to know? A servant, on the other hand, says, what can I do for this person? How can I serve them? And you know the very best thing that you can do for someone, uh, the best way you can serve someone is to share the gospel with them, to share the good news of Jesus with them. What better way is there to serve? And you know, maybe you didn't hear the announcement at the beginning, but Zach talked about this afternoon, we have four classes. I'm teaching one of the classes this afternoon, a class on how to share your faith, a class on evangelism. And so if you don't feel confident in being able to do that, please join me this afternoon from two to five up in the upper room, and we're going to be talking about that. That's the best way to serve people is to be able to share the love of Jesus with them. Sometimes we all get let down by people. So as a servant, how should we respond when we're let down? Well, how did Jesus respond? In the garden, what did Jesus do? He asked the disciples to wait up with him to stay awake and to pray while he went out and agonized over this prayer time, that struggle that he was having about going to the cross. And what did the disciples do? They fell asleep. And Jesus comes back and he, he finds a way to encourage him. What does Jesus say? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's, it's like he's saying, you know what? I, I know you guys meant well. What? He finds something to compliment them for. That's the heart of a servant. Jesus died for people like you and me who are stubborn. Do you know anyone who's stubborn? You have people who are stubborn in your life? I think we all do. How are you treating them? You know, Jesus died for people who are always wanting from him and never wanting to give anything. Jesus died for people who slept through his hour of greatest need. Has anybody slept through your hour of greatest need? How are you responding to them? What are you doing? Are you withdrawing from them? Are you being cold to them? Or do you keep a position of servanthood that's not natural for us to do, that's hard to do? But remember, we have the Holy Spirit in our lives who has shed abroad the love of God in our hearts, it says in Romans 5, 5. Uh, he shed abroad the love of God in our hearts so that we can love people with his love, so that we can serve people with the same service that Jesus served them. If you keep looking at what Jesus did, you don't give up on people. You keep praying, you keep serving. And the more you keep looking at Jesus and looking at the cross, the more you will be melted by that truth. The, the more you will draw on the resources of that and the more you'll be able to be the kind of servant Jesus is. It was the blood of Christ that ransomed us, not just to make us happy, but to prepare us, like Paul says in Titus 2, to be a people for himself eager to do what is good. Man, there's so much there. It's hard to boil this all down into one 35-minute sermon or whatever it is, but man, I hope that you'll meditate on this as you go home uh, today and this week. Let's pray together. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we want to be a church of people who do reach out to folks who are hard to love. We want to be a church full of servants. We know we can only get the strength from you to do that. And we ask, Lord, that you would turn us into the great and beautiful servant that your son was. We pray that you would give us your power and kindness so we can serve like Jesus. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who says, man, this is new to me, that you've spoken to their hearts, you're drawing them to yourself, would they just respond in in faith to you now? In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Well, now may the God of peace equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen.